Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And I just want to stop there and draw your attention to the fact that that is repeated, that is stated twice in this short little passage because that's an emphasis that John makes about God. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Don't be confused by the use of the term seven spirits. We are very confident there are no literal seven spirits, but it's symbolic of the powerful spirit of God or, or the Holy Spirit or his, uh, his awesome power. It, it, it's all it is. It's nothing mysterious beyond that. Some people like to imply that the word seven is a word of perfection and it's a little difficult for me to go that far even though it is, it is used many times in connection with God. I'm, I'm not into numerology people. I'm just not. It, numerology bores me. As a, in a sense, we can see the application of seven many times with reference to God. But when you start trying to make too much out of that, it really gets off in left field. So from the seven spirits of God uh, before his throne and from, and from Jesus Christ. If you take that seven spirits to be the Holy Spirit, then you have a reference to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that would be a Trinitarian reference in this passage, which that works. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead and the root of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Here's the repetition of that phrase. Who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, the churches had their struggles. These seven churches were facing what all the churches in those days we're facing and that is the struggle against the governmental oppression that was coming against them the, when Christians when people first started getting saved and they bought into what now we recognize as the Christian religion it was not Judaism many of them were Jews but it was not Judaism so they tried to go back and worship with their Jewish people in the synagogues. And because of their experience with Jesus Christ, and Jesus was such a divisive character between uh, uh, the Jews and, and uh, the believers, 
it didn't work out for the Christians to worship in the synagogues. Theologically, they were clashing. Uh, just Jesus being the centerpiece of the Christians, that was a clash in itself. So they were booted out of the synagogue. Now, the Jewish religion was a, an honored, respected, uh, legal religion in the Roman Empire. You, you had to be legally uh, approved by the government and Judaism was. Christianity wasn't. But Christianity wasn't yet a technically a separate religion. It was just a bunch of Jews that had a different perspective, theological perspective. But as the Jews ostracized them and kicked them out of the synagogues, then they became a distinct religion all their own. Not recognized by the Roman government. Therefore, subject to persecution. Now, Caesars liked to run around uh, thinking themselves some sort of God. And they would demand people call them God, worship them as God, reverence them as God. And there's a conflict here with Christians who are determined that there's only one God. And the Christians would refuse to bow to Caesar. It made Caesar mad. Persecution ensues. That's what these churches were facing. They were also facing, as we talked about last week, doctrinal compromise. As any church will and does, the enemy works against the church. The strength of the church is its purity. It's right standing before God. See, if you can get compromise into the church, like we'll read about in these churches where you got a woman named Jezebel in one of those churches that is just tearing the church up. Well, that church is not going to be effective and powerful for God in the kingdom work if they've got that kind of internal rot and compromise going on. So with all these struggles that the churches have and the pressure of persecution taking its toll, what they really needed was an encouraging message. They needed to be reminded of the power and the authority of Jesus. What Jesus expected of them. And how God was there to carry them through their struggles. So here in this message that we're going to bring forth today. We're going to show you the reminders that God is giving to the churches. Why they need to maintain their standards. Why they need to hold on. Why they need not be discouraged. And the first thing that is an element of, of encouragement for them is if they think of, be, don't be discouraged, be encouraged because of who he is. This message obviously is applicable for us too. He is called the faithful witness. Now the only Christian martyr listed in these churches by name and there were other Christian martyrs as well was somebody called Antipas from the church of Pergamos and that one specifically named martyr Antipas was called by Jesus my faithful witness when we are tested and tried it's comforting to know that Jesus was tested and tried. Jesus 
was called the faithful witness. Antipas was called by Jesus my faithful witness. You know, I, I struggle in living out my Christianity. Maybe some of you do too. But I always go back to the fact that Jesus suffered. He didn't struggle to live out his Christianity, but he fought battles because of who he was. And of course, the cross was more than anything I'll ever have to face. The persecution that they brought against, Christian, against Christ didn't bother him like things bother me. He just brushed it off. He, he was so focused on his mission. It didn't make any difference what they said about him. He didn't have pity parties. He didn't pray to his father, God, why me? He just handled it all so well, but I don't handle it so well. But I'm reminded that whatever I'm going through, Jesus has been through worse. And I'm not a martyr. And not, I'm not really persecuted for my Christianity. Now, I would say in my life, I have been to some certain degree. Certainly not like those in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Not, not to that extent whatsoever. But there have been times in my life as a Christian, especially when I was younger, when people ostracized me, made fun of me, ridiculed me. That was not easy for a young person to take. That was very frustrating. Now they, today they talk about bullying. And I, I know how bad bullying is. I know how it affects kids to be bullied. My heart goes out to kids who are bullied. I talk to adults today that sometimes they reflect back on their childhood and say, when I was in school, I was always bullied and pushed around. And my heart just breaks for that. But I was bullied because of my Christianity from time to time. And it hurt, but I never backed down. Somehow God gave me the grace to be able to punch through that. Uh, no matter how it hurt, I wouldn't renounce God, no matter what they thought about me. Jesus suffered far more than I'll ever suffer. I have to keep that in mind. So I'm encouraged. I'm not serving somebody who does not know what pain is about. I'm serving somebody who has been there, who has experienced that, who has conquered these things. He's the faithful witness. The second thing about who he is is he's the firstborn from the dead. That was especially important to these people in the churches who would read this letter because they identified the firstborn from the dead as, as being an important kingpin, uh, linchpin of their religion. It, it, Paul said, if, if Christ be not risen, our faith is in vain. Now, we're not carrying on the mission of a dead prophet. We're carrying on the mission of a living Savior. And then third, because of who he is, is because he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And whenever these churches were struggling in their trials, in their temptations, in their struggles, 
just to remember that that person for whom they were existing Jesus Christ the foundation stone of the church that he wasn't just another character in history he is the king of kings and the lord of lords he is the most high he is superior to all others we have somebody important that is our founder for whom we exist for his purpose that we minister the supremacy of Jesus is a vital centerpiece of the message of this book of Revelation and we'll see a little bit more of this just a little bit later in this sermon because of who he is be encouraged, number two, because of what he has done. And John specifically writes, here's the things he has done. First of all, he loves us. One of the common temptations, have you ever noticed, that comes against us whenever we're going through our struggles is to question whether God even cares. Satan uses that one commonly on us. If God really loved us, would I be suffering like this? We question his love. Is he angry with me? Has he forsaken me? Would he allow me to suffer like this if he really loved me? And when we doubt his love, we despair. We don't think we have any hope if God doesn't love us anymore. And then we beat ourselves up. Well, I'm not worthy of his love. Maybe it's because of me that he doesn't. He loves everybody else, but he doesn't love me. So we need this reminder when we go through our struggles, he loves us. He cares about us. We just need to be reminded from time to time, my wife will ask me, do you love me? Now you would think, after 40 and one half years of marriage, this issue has been settled. Why, after 40 years of marriage, would you ask the obvious, do you love me? You know why? Because we need to be reminded. And if she never ever again told me she loved me, in spite of the fact that we've been married this long, I would begin to wonder if she still loves me. Maybe something's changed. So we need these reminders. Well, if we do, from each other, I ought to know God loves me. His word ought to Tell me he loves me. But once in a while, I just need a reminder from God, I still love you. His love will never fail me. But I just need to know from God. And sometimes, you know, you have that little experience with God from time to time where you've just got to get alone with him and come away refreshed and reminded I think I'm still okay with him. <laughs> now I know he still loves me. 
And, and some of the some of those powerful worship songs we sing are are just about God's love for us. What is that other that new His love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. Is that what it is? Love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. That resonates with us. We have to know he loves us. A suffering church, what do they need to know? The message to the church is you need to know God still loves you. He hasn't given up on you. His love never fails. Number two, what else did he do? John says, he freed us from our sins. Now, two of the top three things people want to hear in life are, I love you and you are forgiven. Now the third one is supper's ready. But that doesn't apply right now. Those are the most important things. The most meaningful two messages human beings want to hear and need to hear. Now I've already dealt with I love you. I need to hear that. But I need to know I'm forgiven. If I'm not forgiven, I struggle. I need to know from God I'm forgiven. When John wrote to the churches and said he loved you and he forgave you, is there anything else they needed to hear? He loves me and he forgave me. It's settled. What else do you need? Most of you have probably heard, and I, and I apologize for using a, a very common illustration, but it's so appropriate. Bear with me, those of you who've heard it multiple times, and if those of you who have never heard it, you'll enjoy it. It's, it's, uh, it's an apocryphal story. It, supposedly, uh, Ernest Hemingway wrote this. I cannot find any evidence about this. But the story is told of in Spain, a young boy named Paco had a falling out with his father and ran away from home. The father didn't know how to contact Paco didn't know where he was, so he just took out an ad in the paper. And the ad in the paper said, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the Montana Hotel on Tuesday at noon. And the father goes down to the Montana Hotel. Tuesday noon, 800 young men named Paco showed up. <laughs> looking for their father. You know why? Because we want to know all is forgiven. We are a people that are at odds with the world. We're at odds with our family. We're at odds with God. And we're miserable. But the message of the church is there is forgiveness. And I don't know why the message not reaching the ears of the world. Because if the world could just find out that the message of Christianity is I love you and you are forgiven, they would come running like the 800 Pacos trying to find their father. Where is this forgiveness? There are people here today that you've done things in your life that you personally are not convinced you can be ever forgiven of. 
You're carrying guilt. You're carrying a burden. You hate to think about it. You shrink when you think about it. You hate yourself. You are despised. You, 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 you despise the, 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 the very memory of it. And the question is, can I ever be forgiven? Maybe you have offended somebody and you wonder, I, I wonder if they can ever forgive me. I don't know. I hope they can. They should if you have asked forgiveness, if you've changed. But I know one thing, and you're standing before God, it doesn't make any difference what you've done. If you take that to God, God forgives. And when he forgives, he forgets. And you can walk clean before God. If the world will never drop the case against you, you can say, at least I'm right before my Father. You need that. But it's more than forgiveness. Because if you go back and read that scripture, he doesn't just say you're forgiven. He says you've been set free from your sins by his blood. Now that embodies forgiveness. But it goes beyond just forgiveness. He has freed us. It articulates the imprisoning nature of sin. Sin enslaves. It doesn't come to cohabitate. It doesn't partner with you. It conquers and it enslaves. If you make a pact with the devil, you don't become business partners with the devil. You become his slave. That's the only kind of contract he draws up with people. And people think they are partnering with Satan. You're not. You're selling your soul to him. You become the slave. But the message is you're not only forgiven. The partnership's been broken up. You've been set free. The shackles have been taken off. The prison doors have been opened up. You have been taken out of your enslavement. You have been set free, forgiven, and freed. And that's the joy of the message. Why shouldn't we be encouraged if we have that kind of power in our Heavenly Father? The third thing that he did is he made us a kingdom and priests to serve the Father. So the encouragement to the church is you've got a mission here. You have a purpose. God has purposely designed you to be his kingdom and to be his priests and to be his servants. One of the most devastating things we face as human beings is lack of purpose. Have you ever come to the point where you just feel like what you, your existence in life doesn't have enough significance to have any meaning and then you start, start getting discouraged? Your job might just be a job most anybody could do. You don't feel important enough. You don't feel like you're making a mark in this world. Well, those things can impact you in this world. And if there was no purpose for me beyond just a job in this world and, and, and the things that I do in the family, I, I would struggle as well. But I have a higher purpose. It goes beyond where I work and what I do. And my, my purpose in life is not to pay off a house. My purpose in life you know, is to serve God. He has a purpose for me. He wants me to be his kingdom. 
He wants me to be his priest. He wants me to be his servant. So when all the other earthly things I'm involved in fail to provide me the kind of inspiration and incentive to carry me from day to day, to wake up and say, I have, life has meaning for me. I have a purpose in life. When those things get old and tired and don't motivate me anymore, I still have purpose because God has a purpose for me. It transcends all of those things. It's called a divine purpose. We're not random products of evolution. We're created by God and we're charged with purpose. And all of these powerful incentives, who he is, and what he does, and what he expects of us, are, are meant to encourage us not to become discouraged as Christians, not to become discouraged as a church. These are to keep us from becoming despondent. Uh, and, and obviously if these churches in Asia were struggling with that, churches throughout the ages are going to struggle as well. Now, the third thing, because of who he is, because of what he does, and because he's coming again. And John said, after he got done saying he loves us, he freed us, he's made us a kingdom and priests, then he suddenly says in quotation marks, look, he's coming. With the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him, and so shall it be. Amen. Because he's coming again. That, those churches needed to hear that. Now, I get discouraged with the condition of the world today. I get disgusted with the way things are going, I, I, I get burnt out on, on the news, that uh, new things happening daily and weekly now. The stupidity is, is taking over the American mind. I mean, when we're living in a day and age where people are allowed to choose their identity this has just gone way beyond absurd. What kind of a dimension have we entered? What was that, uh, that latest one? This, this, this lady was advocating that parents need to seek the permission of their baby to what? To change their diaper. Now that's just the latest in this long list of incredibly stupid things that are happening in our world today. And, uh, you, you just, you're bombarded with that and it's, it's getting so nutsy you just want to check out and you know I get my friends together and, and let's buy a little island and but God didn't intend us to do that. You know, you can't run and hide. But it's like, wouldn't that be nice if you could just check out from this, just give the world back to the crazies and we'll go somewhere else. But, but God wants us to win the crazies, to get a transformation of the way they think. And so our job is to come against that.
with the message of Jesus Christ to bring them into transformation, to bring them into the mind of Christ. That's our job. And the only way I stay sane in all of this struggle is thinking of these things. Who he is and what he's done and the fact that he's coming again. And this excited John. John was very fond of the promise of Christ returning. In his writings, he was very fond of that. After all, he had walked with the master. He had learned to love him and appreciate him like no other person he had ever met in his life. But he was gone. But to John, the exciting thing was, but he's not gone forever. This person that he had grown to love so much and he missed him so deeply was excited to know this one thing, but he's coming back. It's kind of like whenever we have these little family gatherings and, you know, our, our loved ones, they, they come and we just, we just cherish the time we have with them. But then the day comes when we have to say goodbye. Oh, it just tears your heart out to have to say goodbye. Now, my, my wife, when it comes to saying goodbye, she's got this little routine. She has to stand outside and watch until the car's out of sight. You know me, it's like you hug them, say goodbye, you go back in the house, and they load up and go. She's out there. This has been going on for I don't know how long. I remember whenever we took, <clears throat> I believe it was Derek, to the airport and put him on a plane and and uh, I, I think he was flying out to come back to Missouri to try out for a, a, a church. I believe that was the time when that happened. It may have been taking Aaron to the airport, but I think it was too. And so we got him on the airplane, and that's it. Let's get on the freeway and get out of here. Rush hour is going to happen in San Francisco. Anybody been in rush hour San Francisco? Let me see. Oh, you haven't lived. <laughs> bumper to bumper. And I, I'm not going to exaggerate because I, I want you to understand exactly how it is. It can take you an hour and a half to go 10 miles. You just creep. You just creep. We've got time. We've got a window of time. Let's get on the freeway. Let's get out. Or she says, not yet. The plane hasn't left. You're kidding me. It's going to be bumper to bumper traffic. It doesn't matter. I want to see the plane take off. Goodbyes are hard. Harder for some of us. But the joy that carries her is I'll see him again. And then sometimes we have, our lives have been impacted by the earthly loss of a loved one. Goodbyes are hard. And you, all, you, you think of, did I get to say a proper goodbye? What was our last conversation? When we lost our husband, our wife, our daughter, our son, our mother, our father, our dear loved one. We didn't get to say goodbye. But it, you know what carries us? We're going to see him again. Whenever my friends in California, their teenage, 20-something-year-old uh, son, just out of the teenage years, 20-something-year-old son had drowned, and we were sitting at the table with them that night. They searched for the body, couldn't find the body, and we were sitting at the table with them, and... I said, God, give me something to say. They've lost their son. 
And they were just, they were just numb. And I said, what if your son just went to the other side of the world, went to Europe? How would you feel? Would you feel like you're feeling now? He said, no, no. I wouldn't feel at all like this. Why not? Well, because I would know he's alive and I'm going to see him again. I said, let me tell you something. He's alive and well. And you're going to see him again. And he told me years later, he said, you don't know what that meant to me. To know that it wasn't as final as I thought it was. Sure, they're gone now and sure it hurts, but I'm going to see him again. But to the churches who are suffering, who are going this through this for Jesus John is telling them, I'm, I've got some exciting news for you. The one that I walked with, the one that I learned to love, he's coming again. We'll get to see him, and you'll get to know the man that I knew. He is coming again. That is the encouraging message to the churches. The death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus, of course, is the centerpiece of the gospel. But the promise of his return gives the message of the good news a whole new meaning. He's not only risen, but he's coming again. The account of what Jesus happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago, I completely missed that. I wasn't there. I didn't get to see him. I didn't get to walk with him. I didn't, didn't get to talk to him. I didn't get to know him on a personal basis. I read it, and I think that's, that's just history. I've got to believe it. But it's more than that. I get to see him one of these days. I get to talk to him one of these days. I get to pick his brain about things one of these days. He's coming again. And for those of us who missed him the first time, we'll get him on the return trip. And this was so much a part of John's theology. For he, he wrote in one of his epistles. He said, dear friends, now we're the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him just as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just like he's pure. It purifies you to carry that conviction. He's coming again. Fourth point of my three-point sermon. Because he's Lord over everything. In that short passage, I said he used this phrase twice. Who is, who was, and who is to come. This means that God, first of all, rules over time. Now, the Greeks sometimes liked to use letters of the alphabet to refer to their deities. One example of that is in, in the vestibule of the ancient oracle of Delphi, there were three inscriptions written on the wall that they've discovered. Uh, the first two were, were very easy to understand. Translated, the first inscription read, Know thyself. And the second inscription read, Nothing in excess. And the third inscription was the letter E. And so the scholars have struggled over it. What does E mean? And have, they've 
found this letter E on different things in that Roman culture and coinage and symbols and, and they, they finally come to the conclusion, understood that the E was a shortened reference to God. And that wasn't the only example of an alphabetical letter standing for God. There, there are other thin references to it. The, the, the letter Z, Zeta in, in the uh, uh, Greek, which that would not have been their last letter. Uh, theirs is Alpha and Omega is the last letter, but the Zeta. Uh, the Z was inspired from what they thought to be like a the shape of a lightning bolt and of course uh, when you're talking lightning and thunder you're talking of Zor, so the, uh, Thor so you're, you, there's, a, there's a thin reference there to uh, a deity as well in the letter C and, and there are other examples as well but, but John in this uh, Greek culture realizes that the Greeks like to take a letter of the alphabet and assign it to their God so jo uh, John is uh, uh, putting this down and, and uh, uh, what, what kind of alphabet letter belongs to God. God says, well how about Alpha and Omega and everything in between? I get them all. I am everything. I'm not the letter E. I'm not the letter Z. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the first. I am the last. I'm the one that was. I'm the one that is. And I'm the one that is to come. I am the God of time. That'll show those Greek gods more than expressing just being the self-existent one. He rules over time. He's the God over history. He's the God over the present. And he's the God over the future. Now, if God doesn't change, and you can read God's history, you can learn what God is like today. And you can learn what God is going to be like tomorrow. So if you read the history of God and he's faithful, he's faithful today. If you read the history of God and he never failed, he won't fail you today. If you read the history of God and he is always there, he, he always wins, he never fails. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the God over your past and your present and your future. There's never been a moment in time when God wasn't there. There will never be a moment in the future when God isn't there. So if he's always been and he always will be, he's here now. Now I don't quite get it. When we think of God in very human terms, and throughout my life, 64 years of living and going to church most of those years, all except the first two years of my life or so where I was probably backslidden, I don't know what it was. <laughs> or maybe I just don't remember being there. All those years, being involved with God. And we start thinking of him in human terms. And I've heard people say, they leave church, boy, God showed up. Now, what does that mean? Where was he just prior to him showing up? 
Where does God go that he's not here? So I think when people say God showed up, I, I don't think that's really what they meant. I think what they meant was, I finally opened my eyes and saw him. I finally opened my heart and I felt him. I finally had fellowship with him. Don't blame God for not being there. He's always there. He's Lord over everything. He rules over time. And, and of course, obviously, he rules over things. He rules over the world. He rules over people. He rules over everybody, everything, everywhere. And it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come. That's the ruling over time. The Almighty. That means he's Lord over everything. Everybody. The Almighty. It the word is the Pantocrator. Now, Caesar was an autocrator. A-U-T-O. The word P-A-N being the opposite of auto, auto, self, single. Pan, Pantocrator. The ruler over everything. If Caesar was the autocrator, God was the Pantocrator. Caesar got to rule, he thought he was pretty big stuff. The Roman Empire was the biggest empire in that world. It was the major empire of the world. And Caesar was the ruler of the empire. But his empire was a micro dot in the universe. He was nothing. He was the autocrator, the ruler over a tiny little sliver in the corner of a little tiny area of the entire universe. And he thought he was hot stuff. But we're talking not about the autocrator, we're talking about the Almighty. He ruled over every season that has ever been and ever will be. He is the great, He is the Almighty. So when these people are being harassed, by Caesar. They have to put it in perspective. He's nothing. The man who is harassing me is nobody. I am living for the Pantocrator. I'm living for the Almighty. And he says it's all right what I'm doing. What does it matter what anybody else says? God the Almighty is the prominent theme in Revelation. He is called the Almighty nine times in this book. Well, that's not a lot of times. He's only called the Almighty one time in the rest of the New Testament. But John wanted to point out in Revelation, he's the Almighty. And just in case you forgot, I want to tell you he's the Almighty. And then he'd write a little bit more and say, don't forget, he's the Almighty. The Almighty. The Almighty. Let it get drilled in your brain. He's the Almighty. He is above all. He's above everything. He's above time. He's above the world. He's above every ruler. He is the Almighty. So what's the summary of this? Paul's writing to these churches, and he's trying to tell them one simple thing. This God, this Almighty, this, this timeless being who was and is and is to come, he is in control. Don't ever forget it. It's never out of God's control. How many of you have been through something, let's say, in the past year or two, 
where it felt like things were spinning out of control and you didn't know how life was ever going to make sense again and then God brought it back together for you. Just your recent testimony. Anybody here ever feel like it was spinning and God brought it back together? How many, let's go back further than, how many ever in your life you thought it was just so far out of control you didn't know you could ever make sense of it and God brought it back together again. You know why? Because he's in control. We're the ones that panic. God never worries. He's in control. Maybe you need to hear that today. Bow your heads.